The first passage can be found on page 670, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. The words of the teacher, son of David, king of Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns to the north. Round and round it goes. Ever turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There's nothing new under the sun. Our second passage for tonight comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which can be found on page 1161. Two Corinthians chapter five, verses one to ten. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an internal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan and are burdened, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we live by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So we make it our goal to please him, whether we are at home in the body or away from it. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due to us 
For the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Thanks, Phil, for reading that. Um, Keep it open if you would, and let me pray for us um, just as we come to to think about these uh, these words together. Father, thank you uh, that in the Bible you make yourself known as a God who speaks. Uh, You're not hiding from us. Uh, You don't want to keep us in the dark. And thank you your word is able to change us as we've already been thinking about tonight and to help us grow. And please would you do that for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Steve said we're thinking about maturity as one of the foundations for, for our life together as a church family. Uh, if you're visiting with us or new to Cambridge, it's great, it's great to have you here. and uh, We'd love to meet you. And you join us as we're, we're thinking about some things as a, a church family together. And we're, we're thinking about maturity, maturing as, maturing as Christians, maturing as a church. And I, I've just been thinking about this. Here, here's a question for you. When you think about growing up, this whole idea of growing up, do you think it's harder now? Um, is growing up harder these days than maybe when your parents were younger? Uh, or, or maybe a century ago, was it easier back then? Do you think it's, it's harder these days? Just for a moment, the person sitting beside you, just tell them what you think, your gut reaction. Is growing up harder these days? What do you think? I'll not get you to give me answers to the front, just chat. Okay, that's, that's just some gut reactions, and it's not scientific, but just to, to get us thinking. I was, I was reading an essay during the week where the, the author of that essay does indeed think it, it's harder uh, growing up these days, and he, here's some of the reasons he gives. They're going to come up on the screen. Um, here's the first thing he said as I read through it. Adulthood is viewed negatively, he reckons, these days, and he quotes Mark Zuckerberg, the guy who founded Facebook, who says, young people are just smarter. Uh, the, there's the line. And, and another entrepreneur, Paul Graham, thinks the maximum threshold for ingenuity is about 32. Beyond that, you're spent. You're done. And then I came across this advert for a Volkswagen. See, see what you think it's saying about grown-up life. See what you make of it. I do anything for you.
get a sense of what it's singing about adult life. I, I think the, the poster campaign that went along with that car was not for them, just for you. Um, adult life, it's a bit of a drag. Um, adulthood is viewed negatively. The, the second thing he said was this, the path to adulthood is harder. And what he meant by that, he, he, he argues in his essay that in the 19th century, children were expected to contribute to the family economy. Those of you who are younger, get ready for this. See what you make of it. Around the age of seven, uh, children would start with simple tasks like getting water or firewood. Uh, then harder jobs as they got a little bit older. Plowing. How do you fancy that? Plowing or tending animals. And in large families, uh, and many families would have been very large. I mean, my mum my mom was one of 14 children. I saw, I saw a picture of my grand once. I never knew her. And I said to my mum, she didn't look very happy, and she said, neither would you be if you'd had eight children and there was another one on the way, and I thought, fair point. Uh, but in large families, older siblings would look after those younger, so the, the transition to the world of adults was gradual. You gradually build up to these things, whereas now, I mean, children contribute little in the way of finance to the family. Uh, they're, they're emotionally... Uh, sort of priceless, but economically, they don't contribute much, and they can feel scandalized if they have to stack a dishwasher. <laughs> and that means, well, I'm not having a go, I'm not having a go, <laughs> and this isn't, look, parents, don't, this isn't, don't think I'm just saying this so you can say, see, I told you, <laughs> but it means by the time, sort of, people growing up today reach the age of 20, many have never done a challenging job in their lives, and they certainly never changed the nappy. And then they're just expected to settle down and do adult things, just like that. It's a drop off the cliff. The number of young men who are, who are grumpy, if they're asked to get up early in the morning. Um, and there's the third thing he says, look, consumerism makes us uncreative. And again, what he means by that is, look, one of the hardest things, I think I, I buy into this, one of the hardest things in becoming an adult is the transition from having your experiences created for you into someone who creates something for others to share. Parents create things for their kids. Kids live in a world where things are created for them, provided for them. But we're all beginning to live in a world where we're provided with endless choices to consume. Everything is prepackaged for us. Food, music, TV shows, clothes, what we're being asked less is to create something to share with others. But adults, adults need to create. Bosses have to create expectations for employees. Workers create a schedule for their work. There comes a point when you can't just select something off a menu. But creating is hard work if you just want to be entertained. And if any of those kind of insights are right, if that's some of the world we live in, the way we're beginning to think and be shaped, uh, where being a grown-up is a bit rubbish, and it's a bit hard, and I don't know how to do it properly, what will we expect to see 
in a church family if we're being influenced by those kinds of things. The danger is, if we're influenced that way, we'll end up being people who avoid taking on responsibilities, we'll have no stamina for hard work, and we'll come to church just wanting to be entertained. We'll be immature children in grown-up bodies. Uh, like a gap year youth who just wants to surf, who thinks never growing up is a cool way to live, not realizing that his whole way of life depends on there being proper adults in the world who've learned how to make surfboards and who've learned how to fly planes and drive trains to get him to the beach and probably parents who've been willing to subsidize his accommodation so he can blow his money on surfing for the year or two years. Oh, that's the way it goes, isn't it? Growing up, uh, becoming mature as Christians in a church family will mean we've got to think about the way culture, the culture we live in, operates and the serious call of the gospel to live for Christ in the right way. So come back to this passage. If you were here this morning, it's the same passage we were looking at this morning. These words of Paul that speak about living life maturely in the real world. And Paul says, he says, dying, we long for permanence. As you begin to think about what Paul says, he says, look, our lives are not just a playground for distractions. They are heading for a very serious destination. And Paul says it in an odd way there in verse 1. He says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, it sounds like he's talking about camping, but he's talking about dying. At 16, some friends and I, we tried to do the West Highland Way. It's a, it's a kind of hiking route from Glasgow to Fort William. You finish it off with climbing Ben Nevis. We did it one summer, and day two, Storms hit the west coast of uh, Scotland. Typical summer. It's delightful. Gales crashing in. And day two, two o'clock in the morning, our tent was blown down. It was gone. It was just wiped out. It was a rubbish tent. It was wiped out. And I think Paul's got that kind of thought. He's saying, look, one day, sooner or later, a storm will hit all of us, and your body will not last. It will be gone. That's real life. But despite that reality, we long for permanence. That's what he's getting at in verse 2. Meanwhile, we groan. In light of this, we groan. We don't like it. Longing to be clothed instead with our heavenly dwellings. Most of you, most of you are younger than me. You're fitter. You're healthier. That's a nice thing. And I think it, there comes a really exciting stage in life. Some of you are, are just beginning to get into this now, a really exciting stage of life, often around the time of, of university and the few years afterwards when the phone goes or the email comes through and the news it brings is news of an engagement or of a marriage, a wedding that you've been invited to. And it scrolls on a few years from that. A few years later, the emails and the phone calls come through and now it's, it's news about a baby that's on the way. All the excitement of, of that. You've been invited to a baptism and there's great time with friends as you gather together. But I think I pass into the stage and I barely saw it coming when I've started on the phone calls that carry the news about a friend who had a stroke or another whose husband died. Weakening bodies. 
We don't like thinking about it. Sun number one on holiday this year. We made it to a beach. And the shout comes out, come and help me. And I shout back, sure thing, what are you doing? And he said, I'm building a wall of sand to stop the sea from knocking down our castle. And we spent a very pleasant half an hour, 40 minutes, digging up the sand, building a huge wall. In vain. (laughs) The tide comes in as surely as the years. It's swept away. We long for things to be fixed and permanent. The writer of Ecclesiastes, in our first reading, describes life as, as meaningless. And the, the word he uses, it doesn't, it's not so much that life doesn't have any meaning to it. It's more like life is like a breath. It's like a puff of smoke. You know that way, your birthday, when you blow out those 50 candles or however many there are. And just at that moment, when the light goes out, there's that wisp of smoke that goes up. And there's something there. It's real. It really is there. But you know, if you try to grab it, that wisp of smoke, that puff of smoke, it'd go right through your fingers. I remember sitting in school. I think it was about 1976. I was thinking about this. When I started primary school, do you know how much a packet of crisps cost? Four pence. I remember at break time, you could buy a packet of crisps for four pence. That's madness, isn't it? Four pence. But I remember the teacher asking us to work out how old we would be in the year 2000. And I did the maths. And I still remember the answer I wrote down, that I would be 30 years old. And the feeling I had, I can't even imagine. I can't imagine what that would feel like to be 30 And now it's a distant memory. It's gone. I've flown past it. It's a puff of smoke. And yet Paul says, not only do we long for permanence, but this longing, do you see where it's from? It's verse 5. Now the one who fashioned us for this very purpose is God. He's the one that made us like this. The reason we hate death The reason it unsettles us when we begin to think about it is because it's not what we were made for. And the explanation the Bible gives for this part of our human experience is that as we've turned from God, rebelled against the author of life, we find that he rightly takes life back from us. We sit under his judgment. And faced with death, we sometimes choose to live in a made-up world, try and pretend it's okay. We try and ignore death. We try to build permanence through families, through career, through legacies, through projects. We're just having fun. But Ecclesiastes says, in the end, what do people gain from all their labors at which they toil under the sun? Nothing. It's a puff of smoke. It's meaningless. But if you've been here with us over the, the past few weeks, As we thought about our life as a church family, we've heard again God has done something about that human experience. He came in the person of Jesus to take the penalty for our sin and to give us the blessing of his life, which is an eternal life, a permanent life. And that's the thing Paul wants us to get about permanence. Permanent life, the thing we long for, can only ever be a gift from God 
You can't get it for grabbing at it yourself. Uh, human history is testimony to that. It's always going. It's great to have a good education. It's great to have hobbies and pursuits. It's great to aspire to, to family and love. But the thing we're looking for, permanence, a life you can keep, it won't be found in those things. Now, verse 1, what Paul says, For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, and it will be, we know that we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands, a permanent house, a life where beauty won't fade. Joan Collins, the actress, said, the problem with beauty is that it's like being born rich and then becoming poor. It fades away. But here's a place where you can have a life where beauty won't fade, a candlelight that won't be snuffed out. And Paul says that kind of life is only ever a gift from God. If you're going to mature in the right way, you need to think about life in this way. Dying, we long for permanence. And permanent life can only ever be a gift from God. And he's given that through the gospel of Jesus, the good news about him. This new life is yours. You're a Christian. It's been given to you as a free gift. If you're not a Christian, it's offered to you. A new home for you. But you've not moved in yet. And so how are we to live? And what does maturity begin to look like in this world where it might be becoming harder to become a grown-up? How do we think about maturing? Here's some things Paul says. He said, look, maturity is shaped by God's promises and God's pleasure. Paul's saying, look, if permanent life, if it only comes as a gift of God through the good news about Jesus, well, then real life, growing, a growing mature life has to be located in him. That's what he says in verse 6. Therefore, we are always confident he mends in the face of death, and we know that as long as we are at home in the body, in this life, we're away from the Lord. And living here now, we still have the reality of death. And we don't pretend it isn't sad or painful, because it is. And we don't cope by building a pretend world. No, verse 7, we live by faith, not by sight. We trust his promises. We put our faith in those. That's how we live. We're not in our permanent home yet, but we live life shaped by God's promises. And then down in verse 9, so we make it our goal to please him. We're not in our permanent home yet, but we live life shaped by God's pleasure. And I think with those things, Paul gives us a simple way of thinking about the content and the character of Christian growth and Christian maturity. The kind of lives and living that reflects we've entered into the beginnings of this permanent life that God is wanting to give to us. We're not in our permanent home yet, but just look at the end of verse 5. See the way God speaks, or Paul speaks here. Now, the one who has fashioned us for this very purpose is God, and then this, who has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. It's a wonderful thing, isn't it, when you make friends with someone and they invite you around to their house. It's a big thing, isn't it? My little boys are beginning to 
find that out, play dates. You've made friends with someone and they've invited you around to their house. You get to see their stuff. Enjoy all of those things. It's always better than your own stuff. I remember coming home and saying to my mum, I've been to Scott's house. His mum's amazing. She makes this great thing called cheese beanos. It's it's bread with beans on the top and cheese on the uh, it's bread with beans on the top and cheese on the top and you grill it. Can you make that, Mum? Like, of course you can. But somebody else's house is always a bit better, isn't it? Everything's great there. And you understand what Paul's getting at here? He's saying, look, what the gospel says is God has made a promise one day to take you to a new home for you. He's inviting you into his house, and it'll be a permanent home to live forever. But in the meantime, he's saying, while you're waiting for that, I'll come and live temporarily in your home that you've got now. I'll be with you. I'll make my home with you. He won't fix everything up in it. Bodies will still wear out. Sadness and sickness will come. But as he comes and you listen to him, he'll give you a real feel for what real life, permanent life, is going to be like. Paul says there will come a day when every life is evaluated and judged. That's verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due to us for the things done well in the body, whether good or bad, for Christians. There will be the question, yes, you're... You're graciously forgiven and saved, but how have you grown? Have you matured? I was saying this morning, I found a door in our garage. We just moved into a new house. I found a door. They didn't seem to have been taken off the hinges of anywhere in the house, and it wasn't part of the garage. I wondered what it was for until I looked a bit more closely at it, and I saw little lines had been etched into it. Beside the lines were dates that had been written in and initials beside them. You understand what it was. It's not a door anymore. It's something much more fabulous than that. It's become a glorious way of measuring and marking growth. Do you remember that? As you got bigger, the line above your head, am I any bigger? Wanting to stand on your tiptoes just a little bit so you could mark it up and the date goes in. Wanting to grow into an adult world in some way. And Paul here gives us a way of measuring growth. Are we living shaped shaped by God's word? Are we living directed towards God's pleasure? Are you beginning to grow into not just an adult life, but the mature life God's calling you to? Throughout the week, do you take time to listen to what God's word says? Throughout the week, as you make decisions, are you beginning to think this way? Have you found yourself doing that? Would this please God? That's the way to measure yourself. And if you were to measure yourself over the past year, have you grown in those areas? Have you added an inch? A little bit? Uh, look, as we draw these things together, let me give you some things to think about, some ambitions for us as a church. Here's the first one. Here's a great maturing ambition to have. Humility to know you need to grow. It is a staggering thing to think that young people are just smarter. I'm not saying young people aren't smart. You don't know stuff. Jamie, my eight-year-old, was already bamboozling me with stuff. He came home from school and told me he'd been studying art about Surak, some, uh, what was it, pointillism. I'd never even heard of it. He knows stuff. He's smart. 
But to think 20 years on the planet and somehow you've gained all the knowledge you need. Now thinking that way is a mark of immaturity in a Christian. One of the marks of genuine Christian maturity is growing in humility. And part of the reason Paul writes this part of his letters because many of the Corinthian church thought they'd arrived, thought they'd reached the top, had reached a fixed point. And Paul reminds them, the gospel says to all of us, you're not at home yet. And in this life, you never will be. You might grow, but you've not arrived. And that means there's always more to learn. All of us will often need correction. We'll regularly need to forgive and be forgiven. Those of you who are younger, will you listen to your leaders? They're not out to get you. They want to serve you and help you. Those of you who are children at home, will you listen to your parents? Those who want to encourage you to grow as Christians. Those of us who are older, will we sit with God's people and pray, Lord, teach me, correct me, help me grow. If you're humble, you will put yourself in a place where God will bring growth and maturity. Here's another thing. Discipline to choose the good. I think another mark of maturity is developing discipline in choosing the good. If God tells us the way to live and grow is shaped by his word and living for his pleasure, then keep disciplining yourself to do those things. Come on Sundays and be taught. Learn to read God's word at home by yourself. Have a Bible by your bed if it helps. Open up in the morning before you go to bed at night. And when you come to church, don't come to be entertained. Come eager to learn, willing to serve and worship the Lord. Be disciplined to choose the good. And last of all, look, pursue a joy-filled passion for Christ. I've heard people say things like this. Look, it's, it's new Christians who are always the most excited. It's new Christians who are always the most enthusiastic. And I kind of know what they mean, but I, I think if you think that way, then you've not met Derek who comes to our morning services. He's a, an old saint, and he's one of the most enthusiastic Christians I've ever met. And you've not really met anyone else who's really mature, if you think that way. I remember someone showing me this. Imagine, see these lines that come up on the screen? Imagine that's you at the bottom, and there's God at the top. And when you became a Christian, you discovered that because of sin, there was a gap between you and God, and that was a problem. And then if someone explained to you how Jesus had come and he died in your place so you could be forgiven, and that bridged the gap between you and God, and it was just terrific news. The cross had done it, and you're so excited about it. But then you've maybe had this experience, the same one that I've had. As you go on as a Christian, you've realized God isn't as holy as you thought he was. He's off the scale holy. And you're not as bad as you thought you were. You're much, much worse. And that means the gap between God and you is bigger than you thought when you became a Christian. But what that means is the cross of Jesus is even bigger than you thought it was when you first became a Christian. It just keeps growing and growing in your eyes. He's a perfect Savior. He reaches all the way up to the heights of God and all the way down to the depths of your sin. And He saves you. 
and knowing him should fill you with a growing joy-filled passion where you find yourself saying, all I want to do is live all of life, all for Christ. And we want to praise a church family that we mature in that kind of way. Let's have a moment of quiet just to think about those things. And then Steve will lead us in what's next.